up, everybody, and welcome back to Actually at Capacity. Look at me even stumbling over the name because it's been so long, but welcome back. Uh, today, I have the Perpetual Self-Optimizer on, and we're going to talk about <laughs> some things that have made people mad in um, on, on Twitter.com and elsewhere. Um, so I hope you guys will like it. We're going to be talking about Syria and minorities and all all these topics that I've uh, avoided touching for a little bit. So, uh, <laughs> so how are you doing today, PSO? I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing pretty well. I'm on my spring break now, so um, you know, just enjoying the the week off and you know, getting into uh, discourses and drama on Twitter always. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, you had a, a tweet that went like viral, and you're talking about you're talking about how being a uh, half Syrian in the U.S. and the the, the good-hearted liberals uh, asking you in hushed tones about the evil dictator Assad, um, and I think that's yeah, I I that really brought back a lot for me too. Um, and it kind of made me think a lot about like the last, it's crazy to think about, but like this discourse has now been going on for like almost a decade now. I know, it's insane. The whole Syria thing. And there's been a lot of um, misinformation. And I think a lot of the times there's um, also not a lot of attention given to the issue of religious minorities in Syria, particularly mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, so you mentioned that you're a Christian and you're also writing an article for Twink Rev, mm-hmm. um, currently that is going to, you're interviewing your family and talking about the way that Christians were impacted in the Syrian civil war. Mm-hmm. So do you want to say a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, yeah, so, uh, my dad was born in Damascus. He came to the U.S. in the 90s. Um, and I mean, I guess I'll just preface like this whole thing by saying my views do not are not representative of every <laughs> Syrian Christian. It's and, sad um, that you have to say that. <laughs> I know, but I, I know people are going to give me flack for it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, so I like they're not representative of every Syrian Christian. And um, like, I'm not an expert on this stuff. I'm not a historian, I'm a student. I'm really not, um, I'm not really much of an authority. I just happen to have some like personal experience, uh, familial experience, um, and just having grown up uh, kind of in the atmosphere of um, like the beginning of the war in like 2011, 2012. Um, and seeing how it's affected my family and how it's affected my dad and people in the region um, has been, I mean, I, I'd like to think that it gives me kind of a unique kind of view of things. Um, but yeah, like I just kind of made that tweet um, after the recent uh, Joe Biden um, <laughs> intervention within his first 30 days in office. He's already yeah. proved himself to be lesser <laughs> evil, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, more of a warmonger than Trump. I mean, at this point, I remember when Trump bombed 
in like early 2016, 2017, I think. It's, it's like a rite of passage to bomb Syria uh, within like the first couple months of office, you know, like we'll have AOC in 2032, <laughs> like bombing, bombing uh, Crack de Chevalier because they didn't uh, put up the trans flag or something okay. like that. No, <laughs> um, but yeah, so the response uh, to that tweet was interesting, and I'm sure we'll go on to talk about it and talk about the kind of reception of the, the Syrian crisis in media. But if you want, I can give listeners a bit of a background of kind of Christians in Syria and a little bit of history if they want um, regarding regarding Christians, because it's it's something a lot of people here talk about, like, oh, we need to talk about the, the persecution of Christians in the Middle East. It's like, yeah, okay, but um, let's talk about the actual political dynamics involved and not just the kind of utopian, like, yeah. oh, there's going to be some, you know, third party to swoop in, some humanitarian party to swoop in and free them of uh, Assad's vicious regime and the vicious regime of the Islamists. So, mm-hmm. um <laughs> I just I just want people to be realistic about the stakes and to be honest about the stakes and to realize the, the amount and degree of conditioning and propaganda they're exposed to. Because there's, I mean, it's ubiquitous, as, as I'm sure most of our listeners, most of your listeners know, like, it's, uh, it's inescapable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I think also just in general, the way that Christians in the Middle East are treated uh, in the media and in Canada and the U.S. is kind of, it's very strange. Like you have a sort of neoconservative fetishization of them where Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, we have to protect them and whatever. Um, By the way, here's a billion to al-Nusra, but yeah, you have like that conception. And then similarly, I think, you know, you have liberals and leftists who have also kind of failed in this regard because they think that the Christian experience for people in the Middle East is the same as Christians in the U.S. So they assume that they have a lot more political power than they actually do. Um, And so they don't really treat Christian persecution as a valid thing. I think especially Mm -hmm. like past nine, post 9-11, you hear a lot of talk on the left about Islamophobia, don't really hear that much about, um, Christian persecution in the Middle East and so that's Mm -hmm. definitely yeah like that's something that has been very uh frustrating for me to observe yeah absolutely I mean um Christians uh I mean in Syria in particular has a it has a large and um kind of historic Christian contingent which has been uh kind of decreasing in population due to killings and exodus Um, And now I think Christians make up like 10% of the population there, and it's obviously still decreasing. But in the 40s, I I researched this, they made up like between 20 and 40% of the population. So they used to be like a large plurality. Um, And yeah, I mean, since the conflict, like, I think it's something like, the numbers vary a lot. I was doing some research for this because I wanted to be as accurate as possible. And like, it's, I, I found somewhere like 300,000, between 300,000 and 900,000 Christian Syrians left the country since 2011, which is like a huge gap. So I'm, I'm not even sure that there's even like good reporting and good kind of statistical data regarding what's happened since the, the beginning of the conflict. Um, but um, I mean, I can, I can give some like, <laughs> 
uh, broad generalizations about mm -hmm. kind of Christians uh, in relation to uh, the regime, in relation to the rebels, um, if you want. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, I think one thing Christian Syrians generally can agree on is that they don't want their country to be divided. Um, they have loyalty to the country, but also loyalty to state institutions, and they don't want them to be destroyed because um, social division, and obviously the kind of social division that's been exacerbated by this proxy war means more sectarianism, more persecution, because they're obviously a fairly small minority and less social cohesion. Um, and I mean, one thing that I don't think a lot of people realize, because um, I mean, due to a lot of factors, like the Middle East is like seen as this like monolith of like Islamic, like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, influence, which in some ways it is, but I mean, um, like Christians in Syria date back to the beginning of Christianity, basically first century AD. Um, and uh, the first kind of converts were Assyrians, which have been inhabiting Syria and Mesopotamia since 2500 BC. So, I mean, a really ancient kind of group, which is still around today in various diaspora populations and in populations still in Syria. And um, they, yeah, so I mean, Assyrians have obviously like uh, this kind of ancient civilization. They've been through a lot of kind of tumult throughout the centuries. Um, but the the Syriac language was the primary language spoken in kind of Aramaic um, Christian communities in the first century AD, and that's still the language which is used in liturgical um, kind of uh, like church. Uh, excuse me, church um, services uh, in the, the Syriac uh, Christian sects in Syria still. So this ancient Aramaic language uh, is still used um, in, in church services today, which is kind of extraordinary. Um, and I mean, I guess like another generalization that can be made is that um, Christian Syrians tend to identify kind of more with um, a kind of historical Syria rather than a more pan-Arab kind of nationalist view. Um, and this is like partially evidenced by um, parties like the Syrian Social Nationalist Party, which um, contains a large plurality of Christians. It's the second largest political party in Syria. And it's for a kind of reunification of the Syrian state um, from pre like 1916 borders, which was the Sykes-Picot agreement between France and England, which divvied up basically all of Mesopotamia into the modern borders that we have now. So um, I think it's fair to say that uh, Christians in Syria kind of tend to identify uh, fairly strongly with the modern Syrian state, but also um, fairly strongly with the historic kind of borders of Syria and the kind of historic Assyrian kind of civilization that's largely been destroyed. No, oh, that's, yeah, that's very interesting. I, like, I, I, I think similarly, um, there's like a very, you don't really, it makes me think a lot about how like there's a lot of people who like there's a lot of discourse about protecting 
Middle East Christians, but there's not mm-hmm. a lot of like knowledge about how deep the history goes. And like, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people didn't even know what like who Assyrians were until very recently as well. Right. Um, and that has only been very recently brought out through through this issue. Mm-hmm. And so so right now, you so you've been writing an article um, that is on the experiences of of your family during the war mm-hmm. um do you want to say a little bit more about the article or give give people a little bit of a, a sneak peek into that um yeah i've i mean since i've started writing that which has been like uh like probably two months ago wow. like i've i mean i've just had a lot of like distractions and stuff because of school um and um i mean it's been kind of tricky uh, detailing exactly when it, what I wanted to cover, because on one hand, I want to do a kind of broader geopolitical analysis of the Syrian conflict more generally, but I also wanted to focus on the more kind of autobiographical details, but it's kind of difficult because like, I mean, when I talk to my family about this stuff, like it's hard not to include specific details, which I wouldn't want out there because I don't want, I don't know, like like for example like my that viral tweet like i got a dm from like some anonymous turkish account with death threats and like tell me where you live like stuff like that so i really don't want (laughs) i want to keep myself as anonymous as possible when i'm talking about this stuff publicly but um yeah so um i guess like one of the kind of prevailing sentiments that i got um from kind of talking to family members and my dad reaching out to um friends of his, both uh, Muslim and Christian from Syria, um, kind of the prevailing sentiment is just like uh, that they wanted like, you know, uh, readers to understand is like, we just want to be left alone. (laughs) Like kind of self-determination is something that I think is very important to a lot of Christian or to a lot of Syrians and especially Christian Syrians. And um, I mean, obviously, since the beginning of the conflict, it's been very clear that this whole thing, um, including a lot of the so-called sectarian divisions, are orchestrated and are artificially created and exacerbated by forces that are not uh, Syrian um, and by kind of uh, geopolitical interests that have really nothing to do with the interests of the Syrian people. And obviously, on one hand, that's, you know, the US, Turkey, Israel, um, the Gulf states and NATO. And then on the other hand, it's, uh, you know, Russia, China, Iran. Um, And this is obviously not to say that um, they represent like Syrian sentiments equally, because they absolutely don't. Um, But it's to say that, like, I think there is a strong kind of undercurrent, especially in, kind of uh, minority Syrian populations of self-determination. Like we just, we want to be able to govern ourselves. We want to be able to kind of um, have authority over, you know, our historic kind of homelands. Um, And that's a process that's been interrupted basically throughout the entirety of, uh, I mean, throughout the entirety of the the Levant and the, the Fertile Crescent, but also especially the entirety entire history of like the 20th century and the 21st century and um yeah i mean i guess that's one thing i'm going to focus on in the article just this kind of like um this kind of desire for self-determination um 
and you know just to be like a lot of them just just said you know we want to be left alone <laughs> like that's all this is we want to live our lives you know yeah it's almost like it's been treated as like a playground for like major powers to fight out their separate uh conflicts with each other mm -hmm. um and yeah so we just saw uh like the the justification right now for for Biden interfering was oh well he was striking an Iranian uh, group <laughs> they were a threat mm -hmm. to him um, so yeah it's just like it's like what does that have to do with Syria but then mm -hmm. you also see the narrative that oh okay well actually the U.S. or NATO or whoever or the White Helmets mm -hmm. um, are interfering to protect uh, to protect Syria from uh, a dictator. So what what are your thoughts on, on that? My thoughts on that are pretty simple because like the entire premise um, of basically every uh, American and Western intervention post World War II, when the kind of American empire started growing into the kind of hegemonic world power that it is today, they were all prefaced on this notion of humanitarian intervention. So uh, kind of at the beginning of the Syrian conflict, you see a lot of rhetoric about, oh, you know, Assad, he's, you know, he's gassing his own people, he's killing his own people, we need a neutral kind of managerial third party to step in and, you know, tell him who's boss, say like, you can't, you can't keep doing that, you know, slap him on the wrist. Um, Human resources. <laughs> exactly that's how they that's how we do war now <laughs> with this like tit for tat kind of managerial style but um i mean western kind of uh propaganda outlets and especially pr the progressive ones um have imbued Assad with so much power they like see him as a uniquely evil dictator um who desires to kind of uh, crush and conquer like the even the concept of humanity and decency in his like vicious reactionary grasp right that's kind of the line we're being told and um if you don't mind actually i came across this passage um from the german philosopher carl schmidt um <laughs> in the concept of the political and uh re regarding specifically the kind of notion of kind of humanitarian intervention and he says the concept of humanity is an especially useful ideological instrument of imperialistic expansion uh, to confiscate the word humanity, to invoke and monopolize such a term probably has certain incalculable effects, such as denying the enemy the quality of being human and declaring him to be an outlaw of humanity, and a war can thereby be driven to the most extreme inhumanity. But besides this high, highly political utilization of the non-political term humanity, there are no wars of humanity as such. Humanity is not a political concept, and no political entity or society corresponds to it. So, I mean, fundamentally, um, what I kind of want people to take away from, um, from the kind of entire Syrian conflict is that there's no real kind of humanitarian intervention. There's no such thing. There's just intervention on behalf of different uh, kind of financial interests. And I mean, if you look back at the advent of the war and the kind of uh, reasons for, um, escalation and for intervention i mean you can you can look at even uh like back in 2010 erdogan the the turkish 
later proposed a pipeline from Qatar to Turkey, which would cut directly through Syria and provide natural gas for Turkey and European Union states, which are currently reliant on Russia, um, which is the biggest natural gas supplier in Europe. And Syria obviously rejected that proposal because of their alliance with the Russians. But um, I mean, obviously a lot of the reason why, um, why things kind of heated up after that um, and obviously this is kind of the, the um, kind of, you know, like the, the kind of naked financial material interests of these, these powers that, um, you know, they want, they want to coerce, um, they want to coerce the Syrian government into acting in accordance with their political will. Um, and that's kind of, you know, part of the reason this kind of, you know, the notion of, uh, material interest is important for understanding um, why the conflict took place in the first place. It's not really an organic civil war in any traditional sense. It's kind of, I mean, like I said, it's like a manufactured civil war um, for the sake of these, you know, uh, these world powers seeking, seeking dominance. Yeah. And I think, you know, Turkey is, is a really good example of, um, mm-hmm a country that I think is really trying to assert itself as like the new leader of the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Um, even like the way, like they're trying to bring up, like take up this human rights mantle against Israel. <laughs> and it's just mm-hmm. so funny because I'm like, you guys are literally like the Muslim Israel. Right. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and like the way that, you know, they're like, they're, they're, they're a similar kind of power in the region, but um, but I do think they're trying to exert like a sort of uh, cultural and political uh, dominance in, in the region. Um, mm-hmm. But what's what's been interesting, I think, to to me um, is the sort of reaction of the the Western left when it mm-hmm. has come to this conflict. Because I, I I think people didn't really, and I mean I was pretty young when the Iraq War started, but I think that people didn't really hesitate to reject uh, or at least be skeptical of the claims that their governments were making in order to justify the war. Whereas Mm -hmm. now it seems like they're readily embraced Um, Mm -hmm. and the same sort of like tropes about the government is also being embraced. And like, I mean, I've never been a fan of this this government. I'm not like a, a big, uh, (laughs) to put it lightly. but I, I do think that, you know, the, the way that like the caricatures have just been really bought into, like, I think, you know, we, we used to sort of see like, okay, people are rational actors, they behave in the system for, like, even if they do, they do something good or bad, they do it for a rational purpose. And now you have people being like, well, there's just this evil maniac who's just like gassing the the area he's already mm-hmm. won over for no reason at mm-hmm. all there's like no serious analysis and i'm kind of right. wondering like what happened what happened to the to the u.s left or what happened to um like mm. you know I, it's it's almost impossible to have a, a discussion on it i mean i feel like i've kind of bowed out of it on on twitter many times because mm-hmm. i've been like i can't have a a serious rational discussion because people seem to take like like skepticism of the war narrative now as like some sort of like 
endorsement of a dictatorship or authoritarian or whatever the, the next mm -hmm. buzzword is. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, no, that's absolutely right. Like, I think the U.S. Uh, kind of left um, broadly, I mean, base, I can't really point to any examples to the contrary other than like maybe half a dozen. Um, but like the U.S. left broadly has largely kind of um, given up on a uh, kind of, you could say, you could call it like a statist um, uh, kind of or pro-state, even just like the very notion of having a state which is independent from uh, kind of Western hegemony is is something that's that's that the U.S. left is kind of allergic to, um, uh, and I think that has to do largely with a kind of shift um, away from actually trying to. Um, I mean, I'm speaking kind of abstractly here, but I'm referring specifically to the U.S. left's tendency um to uh instead of look uh for kind of state power to implement kind of redistributive uh policies or kind of ba basic economic promises they're now turning to kind of this anarchistic conception of mutual aid or charity or some kind of um a more kind of socially libertarian view of how society ought to be run. And part of that obviously has to do with the um, the end of the Soviet era and the kind of end of the, the Soviet state. But um, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the US left um, is kind of uh, very lukewarm about um, kind of Assad and the kind of Eurasian powers that support him because they, from very early on, they saw the Kurds as being this kind of viable alternative um, to both kind of Islamist fundamentalism, but also, you know, um, the Syrian regime. And they kind of allied themselves with the Kurds early on, thinking that the Kurds were a kind of egalitarian, um, kind of socialist, especially libertarian socialist influenced by the likes of a guy uh, of a guy named Murray Bookchin, who was an American anarchist, um, you know, famous theorist of the new left, um, who influenced Abdullah Ocalan, the uh, the Kurdish um, head of the or the head of the Kurdish Workers Party, which is um, now the, the, the militant division is fighting both um, Assad and the the Islamic fundamentalists, except, you know, it's been uh, happy to ally with the fundamentalists when it's been um, uh, kind of uh, <laughs> convenient for them. But um, so, yeah, I mean, they're like, I think the US left saw the emergence of this kind of um, uh, kind of, you know, morally right, righteous kind of alternative to both Eurasian and Western hegemony, at least the way they saw it. Um, and then as the years went on, uh, they came to realize that they kind of made a grave mistake because, um, you know, the Kurds, uh, at, you know, for all, and I admire, I honestly admire the ideological, like the, you know, the kind of, you know, deep feminist roots and the deep kind of uh, ecological roots of the kind of Kurdish, um, ideological, uh, like the kind of radical kind of Kurdish ideological pro project. Um, but um, it was kind of revealed, you know, over time that the Kurds were willing to work with 
uh, the U.S. to work with Israel to take funds from both. Um, and at the end of the day, they are trying to establish an ethno state in northern Syria. And that's what the project fundamentally is, the kind of ideological um, uh, you know, the ideological goals were kind of secondary or peripheral to their actual kind of fundamental project, which is, um, which is a project that I, you know, I support to some extent because they've been under brutal, um, you know, uh, like kind of destructive um, attack from, you know, the Turks and then before them the Ottomans for ages. But that doesn't mean that they can do what they're doing in places like Raqqa, which is um, displacing, uh, you know, indigenous Assyrian uh, Christian um, villages and banning, uh, you know, Arabic and Syriac from being taught in school. So, I mean, that's, you know, at the end of the day, the U.S. left kind of got swept up in the romanticism of the kind of revolutionary Kurdish imagery, the Kurdish ideological stuff. Um, but they didn't realize the actual stakes involved, which is the Kurdish were never going to become a major power um, in the region, uh, and they were not—they uh, were not the kind of alternative to American hegemony. They were only, in some cases, an outgrowth of it. They weren't um, really meaningfully, you know, challenging uh, kind of Western imperial influence. That's kind of the bottom line. So. They, I think a lot of people uh, in the Western kind of left made that mistake early on and then never really recovered with their analysis. And now they still have to pretend that, uh, you know, Assad is, you know, this uniquely vicious dictator, which I have problems with them too. Everybody has problems. Anybody with a conscience would. But that's beside the point. This is a geopolitical conflict. Um, it's not... Uh, it's, it's more than just one guy's being bad. It, it's a whole host of, you know, historical and geopolitical, you know, interests uh, going up against each other. And the U.S. left failed to understand that. They just got swept up in the, in the romanticism of it all, which is, you know, understandable, but it points to a broader failure, I think, with their, their project. <laughs> yeah, I think that's definitely... I, I just was really astonished by like the level of caricature mm -hmm. um, and it's something I've noticed with a lot of conflict and I think kind of also pertains to the Schmidt quote that you uh, had just uh, brought up but it like whenever there's a sort of imperial goal they always make it about like the leader and they make him seem to look like some sort of psycho mm -hmm. um, and I think that kind of I don't know it seems like the modern left today they kind of have like that it fits the sort of ideology they have where like the the like badness is in like the character of someone like if you're mm -hmm. you know your moral your whole moral character is like totally evil and like you're just, like enemy versus good and like whatever mm -hmm. um but I, I think another thing that kind of rubbed me the wrong way with the the Kurdish thing, which I also was like supportive of in a, mm -hmm. in many ways, was that like it still doesn't resolve. Like, okay, so do you think the the Kurds are going to govern all of Syria because exactly. this war was like a regime change war, right? Like it was mm -hmm. it was intent on taking out Assad, 
And mm-hmm. so it's like my my point was like who's gonna govern like are the Kurds gonna just take over all like it's highly unlikely they're gonna take over all of Syria. Exactly. So who who's the the strongest group? Who's the strongest opposition? Mm-hmm. Well, they're not very savory, especially <laughs> to people who are like Christians, Shia, mm-hmm. um basically even like women, like if yeah. you at, if you take a look at Idlib right now, it's yeah. like it's not great. And and it's interesting because I think that, you know, American leftists are very comfortable with using the lesser evil rhetoric in their own country, but mm-hmm. they don't really seem to be as comfortable doing it. Like they're more utopian with other countries where they're just like, nope, like this person's evil. We just have to get them out. It doesn't matter what the next consequences are. We just got to get them out. Um, and if you look at like what happened in Libya or like yeah. Iraq, it's like, okay, clearly you can't just take out the bad guy (laughs) and solve all your problems so why are why are they trying this again like that's just to me that the kind of and 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 now it's it almost seems like it's being used as a sort of way like not even like now it looks to me like their sites aren't even on syria anymore it's like Mm -hmm. on uh finding which people are good and bad Mm -hmm. so it's like you know oh you don't want to overthrow this person you must be evil this is how we form our little cliques now and i think yeah. i don't know this was a very big point of disillusionment for me with the the u.s left and the canadian left yeah absolutely i mean so much of it boils down to that kind of tendency toward moralistic judgment which you brought up which is like yeah, you know, I don't, I don't want to support the actual lesser of two evils in this case, which is a, an authoritarian but secular uh, government, um, as opposed to uh, kind of, um, you know, Islamic fundamentalism and kind of anarchic factions just fighting each other like they have in Idlib for the last several years. I mean, even like you know, al-Nusra, you know, has, you know, does air, like, or fires mortars at, like, free free Syria army groups. So even within the kind of uh, so-called resistance to Assad, there isn't very much cohesion or organization involved. Um, and the only organization comes from basically the Turks and the money that the Turks pour in, as well as the Gulf states, of course. Um, but yeah, and, you know, they, they're always looking for that kind of uh, kind of morally superior actor, that kind of savior figure that can, you know, swoop in and, um, and you know, kind of, you know, liberate everybody, but on egalitarian terms, it's like, I'm sorry, this is geopolitics, you're not going to have a perfect resolution, you're not going to have like, uh, you know, you have like bad and then less bad, <laughs> usually you don't really have, um, you know, perfection. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that you brought up Idlib, because um, it's kind of indicative of the way that the the you know the the rebel groups actually treat Christians and um, especially the more radical factions um, like Idlib like parts it's basically the last bastion of rebel control in the country um, and if Idlib falls basically the regime the you know the, the Assad government has won. Um, but if Idlib, you know, still, if, if those rebel groups still retain uh, control of parts of Idlib, it means that the Turks still have a chance of, uh, you know, kind of capturing, you know, large swaths of land in the, in the north. Um, and yeah, like, 
you know, the Turkish lira is literally being used as currency in Idlib right now. You know, Sharia law is implemented um, most of the time. Churches and Christian sites have been demolished. Uh, the Christian population went from 1300 to zero. There are no Christians left in Idlib anymore. Um, they've all been driven out or killed. And I mean, that's just kind of a, a smaller example of what happened in uh, places like Aleppo and uh, homes early on in the in the conflict um, where like, you know, in homes like uh, the city of homes, like 150,000 Christians were forced out by, um, you know, the free, the so-called free Syria army, the so-called um, <laughs> opposition to Assad's force, um, you know, leaving behind their homes and all of their belongings. Um, and, you know, the reason given for a lot of this was that, oh, the Christians are too close to the regime. The Christians are, uh, you know, uh, traitors to the revolutionary cause. It's like, well, uh, if that's the justification being used for, you know, some of the most inhumane and, and vicious kind of violence against anyone um, in you know, the recent memory of, you know, recent history of middle, of the, you know, Middle East conflicts, then that's a pretty bad reason, <laughs> you know, and um, yeah, it's just, I mean, all around, like, um, the kind of, I really do blame the left in so many respects, because um, at the end of the day, like, they always act, they always snap back in line, just like in 2008, with the election of Obama, they, they you know, he, like you, like you were saying, just before we, we were recording, he kind of sucked all of the anti-war energy into his campaign. And what do we have left? Well, you know, Obama himself started Operation Timber Sycamore, which was the funneling of, of arms and funds and training to, um, you know, uh, rebels in, in 2012 anti-Assad rebels um, and, you know, Obama largely um, is <laughs> responsible for a lot of what's been happening. And this happens time and time again, the left are always late to the game in terms of doing like actual kind of material analysis and, you know, actual kind of uh, exertion of, you know, narrative influence, which they have a lot of now, especially post you know, post Bernie, they have a lot of influence in the media sphere, which they could be using for, you know, actual, you know, genuine good, as opposed to just, you know, um, snapping in line when the, when the kind of uh, left wing of capital demands, <laughs> demands them to just like they did behind Joe Biden, you know, sorry, I'm just going on a tangent at this point. No, I, I, talk think, I think it is true. Though, because <laughs> it's a sort of like aesthetic, like, it, it's interesting. And I was uh, I was recently put on to Adam Curtis. I, like I mm -hmm. hadn't discovered him before, but I, I really enjoyed what he had to say. And he was talking about how like there's a sort of like nursery where we're all allowed to like go pretend to be radical without actually mm -hmm. like impacting any change. And he's very critical of the radicals for that reason. And I think that, you know, there's a, there's truth to that in the sense that you like especially something that that Syria really showed me mm -hmm. um that put me off of like the U.S. left and the Canadian left is is precisely that so you have like these radical aesthetics right mm -hmm. like oh we're resisting tyranny we're resisting right. but it's an aesthetic that falls right in line with 
like the military industrial complex and right. with like the interests of countries like Turkey mm-hmm. um, who are not radical at all. And so, <laughs> and so it's just kind of, it's precisely that, right? Like they've been able to act out these sorts of radical aesthetic fantasies while kind mm-hmm. of maintaining the same imperial status quo and mm-hmm. i mean this is the this is the the left left i'm not talking about like liberals because liberal media yeah. also has its its fair share of, of blame here mm-hmm. and i mean the, the liberal media has been doing this since like the iraq war but yeah we'd previously talked about this as well as like the media narrative um on on syria and how it's just been like a major uh, at least for me, it's it's made me really, or it's really decreased my trust in media institutions. Do you want to speak mm-hmm. to that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. No, I mean, I think everybody with half a brain and with the capability of critical thinking should be distrustful of uh, institutions of media and uh, kind of like these kind of meta narratives now that dominate um, you know, uh, all of the, all of the airwaves, especially on, um, you know, Facebook and Twitter. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's so important to emphasize the actual role of the left. And like you said, the real left, not the liberal left, um, in all of this in kind of manufacturing consent, um, for the kind of, uh, left side of capital, which is a, a phrase I'm kind of fond of using, but, um, yeah, I mean, the thing about like um, Syria, especially in regard to the left, uh, is that like they've ceded a lot of um, ground. I mean, the left has ceded a lot of ground in terms of um, narrative space, in terms of anti-interventionist sentiment and isolationist sentiment. They've ceded a lot of ground to the right. And that's something I saw with the tweet that I made that kind of went viral was that everybody from like MAGA people to like <laughs> trad cats to like groypers to, um, I even saw this one guy who was like an anarcho capitalist retweeting it. I was like, okay, like this, um, but it was them. And then I saw a lot of, you know, people who were like, you know, actual kind of like hard leftists, like uh, retweeting it. and. Um, it was kind of a beautiful syncretism uh, that I witnessed for like 48 hours in my mentions, just like, um, you know, everybody from, you know, I just like the kind of signifiers flying by. It was like I saw like cross emojis and then American flags and then hashtag MAGAs and then hammer and sickles. And I was like, if there's one thing that like people from every kind of political persuasion can agree on, um, that who are, you know, not annoying uh kind of totalitarian wokies um, is the intervention issue. And I'm so glad that a lot of people on the right now are kind of coming to terms <laughs> with the fact that, um, you know, forever war is not, uh, it's not beneficial to the um, kind of, you know, so-called humanitarian interests, which is, which it's supposedly, um, you know, uh, trying to, trying to save, but it's also not, um, advantageous to American troops themselves. Why do we send out, you know, um, Americans to die, <laughs> to die in, in the Middle East in a place they've never, uh, you know, they've never been to before for the sake of, you know, um, 
American military manufacturers and American um, and European oil interests. And um, I'm just glad that, uh, you know, there can be a kind of mutual understanding between kind of dissident left and dissident right on this on these issues, which I'm seeing emerge more and more. Um, and I'm fond of like, uh, <laughs> the Russian philosopher Alexander Dugin, when he talks about dissident left and dissident right coming together to coming together to strangle the neoliberal center. <laughs> that's, um, that's kind yeah. of uh, the, uh, it's kind of the same energy as um, what's that guy's name? Vosh's Nozbol Vortex, like Glenn oh Greenwald God. and Tucker Carlson <laughs> in dialogue. I, I'm here for it. I'm here for the syncretic energy. I know a lot of your leftist listeners might cringe at that, but like, honestly, um, the more and more, you know, people from dissident right and dissident left can come together. I think there's more and more of a chance of a genuine kind of populist kind of redistributive project and an uh, anti-interventionist project actually, you know, happening. And that's something I would, you know, readily welcome because we're at, uh, we're at, you know, we've made zero progress in this front over the last two decades. So, um, yeah. you know, maybe the tides are shifting for the better, but it's hard to be hopeful. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I am not like, I don't know. I think it's it's really important to unite with anyone who's willing to oppose uh, something like war. Um, and I've said that before. Like, I don't think that you're going to stop wars or, like, fight the military-industrial complex, which is massive, mm -hmm. by just being like, okay, only people who are, like, who agree with me <laughs> can come out to the protest or whatever, or right. do whatever action. So, yeah, like, I mean, you have to build a mass base on these kinds of issues. Mm -hmm. um, and, like, honestly, like, there are people who, like, I have not even liked and like i've still been like okay well you know what if you're gonna oppose this and i'm gonna oppose this and that's a good thing um yeah. because again like there's no need to be utopian about it um mm -hmm. and so yeah i think that is really important and i think that's like something that um like yeah i mean there's some values that i wouldn't compromise but i like i i wouldn't like i, I don't really not a utopian in that in that regard and so I think like especially um I think it's good that there have been a lot of people who have come to see these wars for what they are and I think mm -hmm. also like one of the benefits of online if I can even speak to a benefit <laughs> but um is I feel like journalists are really showing themselves more like you're seeing yeah. a lot more of them and I think you can really see how like it really shows how they think the public is like dumb in a mm -hmm. way that like th we haven't really seen before like they'll right. share stuff and I think especially like the re regime change lobby or the like the pro-regime change journalists like they have this tactic of trying to make you seem like a bad person for mm -hmm. opposing like whatever for like being like oh Biden was like I remember when Biden bombed Syria a few weeks ago and mm -hmm. like there were so many of these journalists trying to make people feel bad for opposing that and it was just so transparent and I think like this is like a relatively new thing where people are waking up to the fact that this is transparent 
and there was like some sort of belling cat thing that was posted and everybody like so i saw i was really heartened to see so many replies being like yeah we've been through like three wars now we get the tactic like that's it you know and so i think you know they are really failing on rhetorical grounds which is Mm -hmm. a positive thing um but yeah it's just been disappointing i guess to see still like people who were like there are people i know who were very anti-iraq war mm-hmm. who then you know i don't know like they don't even they don't say like i'm pro regime change in syria from the u.s but like they want you to like stand up and condemn who they want you to condemn like right. on command right um when that's like not really helpful um and so, like, they kind of do the same tactic that these journalists do, in my opinion, because it's been like, like, I like they've like tried to make me feel bad for being like, I don't want Islamists to like govern the Levant. Exactly. How terrible of me. <laughs> um, and so I think, you know, that's kind of the, the tactic. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, like, I think. Um, I think our, our mutual influence, Christopher Lash and the Revolt of the Elites, he talks about the emergence of this kind of anti-majoritarian kind of elitist um, uh, conception of like public opinion that emerged in journalism, especially with people like Edward Bernays and Walter Lippmann in the First World War when the birth of propaganda um, occurred and the birth of this widespread public opinion management. And I think because um, we're now seeing the kind of innards of the intellectual innards of the journalists minds Mm. now on Twitter all the time. They don't have that facade of like, Oh, we're, we're, you know, we're superior to you, to you. We're uh, well-educated. We're educated in elite institutions. Um, That kind of uh, mentality of kind of um, being able to manage the masses through uh, intellectual means doesn't work anymore because we see how really stupid and, pathetic <laughs> these people are in so many ways and um i love this account on twitter uh called journalists posting their l's online oh, which is just God. like yeah it's incredible it's just a stream of like um it's not even political stuff it's just like stupid mishaps and stupid mistakes and like oh i accidentally you know stepped in dog poop this morning posted by some like daily beast journalist it's like oh just thanks for the reminder that you're a fucking idiot <laughs> like just this kind of thing um so yeah definitely what you're describing is i think a very real and positive phenomenon that people are waking up to like these people who are like the prestigious um relegators of what's true and not true the like fact checker class if you will are um losing influence over the masses and people are you know actually starting to to kind of question um the narratives that yeah like are being um uh kind of rolled out around like you know foreign intervention but also domestic stuff like you know the whole covid the way the whole covid thing was treated um and yeah that's very heartening like it's honestly like it's great to see people like on the right who as a kid i I, you know when i was growing up i you know i was a you know kind of libertarian socialist type leftist you know like utopian as you said but like i was like oh the right is like fascistic and totalitarian and uniquely evil um 
And it's great to see people on the right uh, actually defy that stereotype and actually prove to be critical thinkers in their own right. Um, and this is also evidenced by the kind of censorship and crackdowns um, in, that a lot of kind of, uh, you know, dissident left and right people are facing by, you know, monopolies like Twitter and Facebook. I mean, we've known for ages that anything even remotely kind of uh, critical of the Israeli <laughs> project is deemed, you know, misinformation at best or like outright, uh, you know, violent propaganda at worst, like pro Hamas or something like just some like old British lady retweeting like a cartoon of, of like, uh, you know, a guy in Israeli flag, like with his boot on a Palestinian is deemed like, you know, dangerous and offensive propaganda or something like that. So that's, you know, that's kind of, um, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's good in some ways, but it's also worrisome the, the way that they're, they're responding to this, like, you know, now they're trying to drum up um, legitimation for like, oh, the, uh, you know, private encrypted channels of communication, like Signal and WhatsApp are being used for uh, violent extremist organizing by alt-right and QAnon people. And also the National Guard is just deployed in DC um, for an, uh, you know, an unlimited amount of time because of you know, vague uh, terrorist threats from, from the right. So they're obviously ramping up their so-called war on misinformation, but mm -hmm. I'm glad to see people are not buying it like they did with the Patriot Act and stuff. <laughs> yeah, it would be funny like if the Syrian government funded QAnon as, like, <laughs> as payback for like the US funding on Nusra or something. Oh um, this is totally a joke guys like so if they actually do that don't say i'd have nothing to do with this I'd <laughs> you're on the board you're on the you're, you're like uh, assad's minister of propaganda they're like the moderate rebels uh, mm -hmm. it's it's just endlessly entertaining <laughs> to me that like mm -hmm. you know the same the same people that is like so outrageous to uh to the u.s elite or like mm -hmm would just be funded to overthrow the government in any other country they didn't like. So it's exactly it's, it's very hard to like take it, you know, like buy into the hysteria. And obviously like in Canada things are a bit different, but you know, we had like this big theatrical thing about condemning the Proud Boys. Like the government passed a resolution for that. And right. like I'm like, you guys have said nothing about like arming like literal terrorists across the world. Like you're still selling weapons to Saudi Arabia and you're yeah. like wasting time on condemning this group that would probably be seen as much more pathetic if the media mm -hmm. didn't give them so much, uh, so much screen time to begin with. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely, um, and I think it's, a, it's very fitting that like a conversation on Syria became a conversation about the media because I think yeah. <laughs> such a, you know, that these two are just such like the, the two big failures of our time and, and mm -hmm. something that's really, um, I think anyone should be challenging whether they're on the left or the right or whatever. I'm like in like a ideological purgatory right now. So Me too. <laughs> where that goes. Um, yeah. So. But yeah, we, we're coming up on time. Um, thanks so much for coming on. Is there anything you want to plug? Um, 
Yeah, so I, I co-host a podcast called System of Systems, um, which is we attempt not to be a politics podcast because there are so many of those, but um, we oftentimes go into political territory, but it's mostly, you know, cultural commentary, art criticism. I co-host it with Adam Lehrer, who's a great um, kind of cultural critic. And um, yeah, that, and then I have two articles in Twink Revolution. Um, one, obviously we kind of discussed it here on Syria coming soon. Um, hopefully I can you know, hammer it out. It's going to be probably really long. And unfortunately, Sam and Gian are going to have to wade through like 20 pages or something. But um, yeah, otherwise, you know, thank you so much, Mila, for having me on. Uh, and I don't usually get to talk about this stuff. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been really cool to, to talk about it with you. Yeah, of course, of course. Well, thank you so much again. And thanks to the listeners. We'll, uh, we'll see you next time. Enslaves us.